Hello and welcome to this episode of Anti-Capitalist Resistance Radio, where we're going to be discussing the Marxist roots of Miyazaki's films, how Miyazaki's Marxism impacts his films, and particularly centering on Porco Rosso from 1993 that came at the turning point of his ideological worldviews collapsing, essentially. I'm Rowan Fortune, they, them, and I'm talking to Logan O'Hara, also they, them. So this is my first time actually watching Pocaroso, which is odd because I've actually seen quite a lot of Ghibli films, as is typical of my generation, or at least geeks of my generation. And my immediate feeling from it was that it's a very strange film. And, And I don't really mean that in a way that's overly critical it's good but in plot terms i found slightly dissatisfying the ending is rushed and anticlimactic in the third act at least yet the plot beats generally fit together and i don't think that that's particularly unusual for a ghibli movie there's a tendency to truncate the conclusion in especially heo miyazaki's movies and there's an excellent characterization, some of which goes nowhere. There's some great dialogue. And in a Ghibli film, that's not faint place. Yeah, I was often left wanting more. To what extent was Miyazaki, do you feel, coming to terms with his loss of faith in Marxism in the wake of Yugoslavia? And how do you think that that impacts on the finale that we get here in terms of the themes that the film is exploring? So Porco Rosso is interesting in that the fact that Miyazaki was a socialist and a self-professed Marxist for a time is not exactly, I wouldn't say it's not present in most of his work, but it is so much more clearly brought to the fore in Porco Rosso in a way that it is not in any other movie. And that's how it's presented to a lot of people. And I think it may lead to a slight mischaracterization of what the movie is doing like the most famous line at least the one that i've always heard the most is when porco is sitting in the theater and he's meeting up with one of his old friends from the italian air force who's trying to get him pardoned with the italian military and on the condition that you have to return to the military and fly for mussolini's fascist italy this the movie takes place in 1929 i believe it's the interwar period regardless, so... Um, and that leads to a lot of people... Oh, he says the famous line, I'd rather be a pig than a fascist. And I think that leads to a bit of a mischaracterization of the movie, in that it is so clearly dealing with so many political issues without making much of a political statement. The most obvious point of reference, I feel like, movie-wise for this, is Casablanca, But the movie here does not conclude with Porco somehow returning to the fight against fascism. As you say, the movie is kind of unsatisfying in its conclusion, and I feel like that's a huge part of why. The movie is dealing with so many of these political themes that it just kind of refuses to come to a definitive statement on. And I think Matt is talking about this coming at this pivotal point in his transition away from Marxism, essentially to political incoherence. Because this is a true loss of faith. He doesn't switch to a new faith. This isn't a conversion film. This is confusion. Uh, There's a really good quote that I'm going to run by you here, if I can find. Here we go. 
This is coming from a discussion that he did with the voice actress for Gina, the singer. And he says to her that uh, we felt that the world was getting better bit by bit. Our history was that things would get better. So when the Yugoslavian ethnic wars just happened, we were dumbfounded. What was going on? Were we just going backwards? These last two years since 1992, I've really been running around in a haze. And so for most of the production history, or for the whole production of this movie, Miyazaki is clearly just not sure where he stands on things, and that's reflected in the movie. That quote that you bring up reminds me a lot of a quote from Starting Point as well, where he essentially expresses the same general idea, especially about Yugoslavia. And that's that he he said, I didn't think the people there would resort to that sort of thing. It's a place where so many terrible things have been done in the past. I thought that they would have had enough of it, but apparently they haven't. It taught me that people never do have enough of anything that I was naive. And I think that naivety very strongly expresses his impasse, as you put it. I I would like to definitely come back to his general worldview, because I think there are some points of anchoring there that perhaps belie and undercut that confusion, which is not to say that that confusion isn't a very strong part of where Miyazaki is coming from. But for me, I felt that the tone of this film coming directly out of that Yugoslavia experience, but also his own traumas rooted in the Second World War and his family's complicity in the conflict there, which about which he always had a, a level of ambiguous feeling for obvious reasons, specifically related to his father's dealings with the war effort. Uh, in in specific as as a engineer, I believe. But the tone here is more melancholy than it seems to necessarily even want to be. There's a bitterness in the ending. Nobody dies or ends terribly. And except for for Theo, nobody really gets what they want. And even her ending, her denouement is piffily handled and not really all that satisfying. She stays with the lead singer and that's kind of just wrapped up neatly you know she's got a home away from home and there wasn't really a particular problem with her original home anyway mm-hmm. the idea of tragedy of war and violence as you've mentioned is unsettled there's no project against evils of nationalism which you also mentioned piccolo's romantic rejection of the world is limited to gestures and remains veiled behind ultimately his pig persona a refrain in Miyazaki's work but the question I'd want to ask, to sort of come back to the idea of something more specific, is if that tension was an intentional choice or not. I think it makes the work interesting regardless, but I'm curious to what extent you feel Miyazaki is intentionally, purposefully playing with his own confusion in this respect. And if not, to what extent is he perhaps naively replicating the mixed and confused ideas that are still playing through his head you always get the feeling with Miyazaki that he's a person of great certainties at least in his public presentation he Mm -hmm. doesn't tend to err on the side of ambiguity at all no he comes out with definitive statements and perhaps I'm asking you a a slightly unfair question here because (laughs) it slightly demands that you peer into the mind of Miyazaki, which arguably not many people 
have ever done <laughs> even <laughs> even some of the people quite close to him by all indications right yeah but nonetheless like do you feel in in balance with other movies and his public statements that this film expresses his in doubts his own internal doubts in an intentional and forthright way so the tension that you're talking about you asked me if I thought it was a choice or not, an intentional choice or not. And I'm going to say that I think it was a conscious choice, but I don't know if it was a choice at all. So the production history for this movie is that at this point, he uses the word that would be translated as he needed rehab after working on Kiki's delivery service and producing Isao Takahata's Only Yesterday where both of these works he was ultimately, I gather, kind of apathetic with. And he wanted to work on Porco Rosso as a complete departure from those kinds of earlier coming-of-age projects. It started life as just a scattering of notebooks. I believe he called them the daydream notes. And so these daydream notes were... Essentially, it's his own lighthearted manga that they're all these cute little fun adventure stories, all starring pig protagonists. And the idea for Porco Rosso was to take this collection of small short stories and turn it into a 40 minute, not quite short movie, but you know what I mean, mini movie to have play on Japanese air services, to have play specifically for businessmen who I believe his phrase was they were too tofu minded to um, focus on anything other than this. And by coincidence, I gather uh, he set some of these stories in the Adriatic. And while they were trying to turn this fun adventure story into a movie, the Yugoslav ethnic wars break out and as you might imagine, that makes making this kind of project very strange. It's impossible to do it the way that you were planning on doing it before. And I think that tension gets at the core of what I would say that I take the whole film as being about. Is this movie I mentioned takes place in the interwar period in a world of fantasy adventure. There's danger and excitement, but no real threats you know you have the pirates at the start the air pirates who are they're incompetent and the movie intentionally frames them that way as harmless threatless they're fun but there's as you kind of said there's always like this melancholy and there's this sense of the adriatic is this world apart from the rest of the world that's haunted by the first world war as porco himself is haunted by survivor's guilt we will probably talk about that later on a little bit in more detail. It's this very fun story that has that in the background and the characters are kind of aware that the second world war is around the corner. And so if Miyazaki wants to do this fun adventure story set in the Adriatic only to have the real world close in on him, I think Porco Rosso thematically reflects that pretty Clearly, and that's why I say I do think it was intentional, but it clearly wasn't a choice. He didn't sit back and arbitrarily decide this is an artistic choice that I want to make. It was forced on him by world events. But I agree, it's the most interesting thing about this movie. Is it's so it's conflicted in a way that most of the other Miyazaki movies 
aren't. Except for movies like maybe The Wind Rises, which comes at a lot of these similar themes in so much star have you seen The Wind Rises? Yes, I have, yeah. And and it is much starker and I think actually not as sophisticated in its ideological no, handling. It's not as good a movie. <laughs> no. No. I mean I think it's actually arguably one of his weakest as a film it's it's beautifully animated it's 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 beautifully conceived the subplot involving the wife which probably actually expresses deeper more personal conflicts that Miyazaki has undergone about his relationship to his own family is perhaps the element of that film that stands out as something memorable. But I think because of the very nature of it, that it's subsumed into the broader narrative. Uh, and of course, it's it's cack-handedly managed. It received quite strident criticism from the Japanese left for its handling of the period, which whilst arguably isn't entirely fair, because I think the idea that Miyazaki is making any apologies at all for the war atrocities of the Japanese jury, the Japanese government during the Second World War is laughably nonsensical. I think at the same time, Miyazaki doesn't actually manage to mount criticism of war, arguably as stridently as he does in Porco Rosso, which is, you know, odd because Porco Rosso himself is, at the end of it, a complete non-combatant in, in that conflict. He elects not to be a militant anti-fascist. He elects not to, in any way, oppose the coming violence. Arguably, he's not in the position to, but then that's the position Miyazaki has placed him as this quite clearly capable air combatant. Right, Um, So there's an authorial element to that. But nonetheless, maybe in part because of the line, better a pig than a fascist, there's a more strident sense of anti-fascism from this earlier movie than I think there is in the second one. And that's partly because, of course, I do think that the the later movie, by conflating the biography of this Japanese airplane engineer with a fictional story that has an altogether more moral protagonist, and that this particular engineer developed one of the most deadly weapons of the Japanese war machine definitely contributes to that. There's a there's a tension there, and I'm I'm very sympathetic to Miyazaki's decisive anti-moralism, let's say. But I think that perhaps he crosses the line between anti-moralism and not being able to make any kind of ethical, historical judgments whatsoever in the later film, in a way that I'm absolutely sure is unintentional on his part. And in fact, I think he would find, and probably did find, quite personally horrifying looking at some responses to the film. An inherent danger of all of Miyazaki's cinema, which is that he very much is an author and very much does approach filmmaking as a form to some degree of therapy, he he definitely works through his own issues. And that's how you see him in his movies. That's how you see him in this film, in in Porco Rosso, and it's how you see him in so many of his other movies. He has stand-in characters and his own... I would say these are still, these are the two where that is the most clearly the case. Massively, yeah. 
yeah, I think those two films are the most forthrightly biographical in that sense. They're the most engaged with the histories and the world events that I think define him as a person. And this is, I think, an area where he has so much in common with Marxists of his period and, and Marxists more generally, that he's very engaged in world events, that he is a forthright internationalist in his engagements, and that he is engaged with history in an active way as well. But to sort of come back to Porcaroso, I wanted to pick up a bit on the pirates because you mentioned them and they're something I particularly love. As you know, I'm a, a huge fan of Cast on the Sky or Laputa as it's somewhat more controversially called. Controversial because it's a, a little bit of a of a, an obscenity in, in certain places as I'm sure it's progenitor. Jonathan Swift was entirely aware. And I actually have recently discovered that the... Welsh mytho-poetic author, I cannot remember her name for the life of me, who did House Moving Castle, did a book about a floating city in the sky, which may or may not have been a decisive influence also on Castle in the Sky. So perhaps it wasn't just Jonathan Swift who uh, tripped uh, Miyazaki up a little bit there. But to put that aside, I love the Sky Pirates, they're, they're fantastic. They appear very prominently in this film, but they also appear in a way that almost feels like it almost makes me think that The Castle in the Sky must be a later movie. And we had a pre-podcast discussion where it actually confused the chronological orderings of the two films in that the pirates in Castle in the Sky seem to be directly from Porcaroso. And I don't mean just directly from in the sense that there are similar characters they're animated very similarly. They have similar character designs. They have similar voices. The jokes that they're involved in are so close to one another. Yeah. It's it's almost (laughs) self-plagiarism. I mean, this is not entirely original. I'm actually going to get onto that a bit when I discuss characterization Mm. in this film a little later, because there are particular types that Miyazaki falls back on. I I can mention one right now because she's kind of notable by her absence in this movie in that there is no witch crone in Porco Rosso, Mm -hmm. who definitely does feature, albeit not as a literal witch in Castle in the Sky, in the form of the pirate matriarch Dola. And and Dola is one of my all-time favorite anime characters, perhaps. I, I, you know, absolutely adore her. I've adored her since I, I was growing up. I think it's she's funny that you say that. If you mentioned she's not a witch crone character, but no. she is better at being that kind of character than some of the actual witch crone characters, like Yababa in Spirit Away, who's not bad. I don't mean to suggest that. I just realized it came across that way. But Dola is perfect in a way yeah. that, like. None of the other characters that Miyazaki has done, even the good ones that fill that role, quite quite reach. No, she is she is absolutely, I think, the pinnacle of that type of his <laughs> character. So yeah, with the Sky Pirates and the way that they recall his earlier film, and the fact that they're kind of these admirable, even ideal antagonists as they are in Castle and the Spy and Kai, and there's this element of Castle in the Sky, which I think even further emphasizes this point, which is that for Dola, the protagonist hero, Sheeta, is very much herself as a younger person. And Padzu, the protagonist, love interest, deuteragonist even, of Cast in the Sky, 
is very much a parallel for Dola's engineer husband, who's an older pilot, who's, who she prominently plays chess with. Could easily be missed by younger viewers, I think, as a character at all. He's he's definitely not particularly prominent. But he's definitely related to Padzu in a very similar parallel way. There's a sense in which Shita and Padzu are Dola and the engineer husband, whose name I'm not aware of at the current time, if he's even named. And so that that's who they're going to grow up with. And of course, they go away with the pirates at the end of that movie. There will be occasional spoilers in this in this podcast uh, for films that came out in 1986. So shame on you if you haven't seen them. <laughs> there's there's a parallel there. They're going to grow up into into these pirates. They're ideal people. Sheeta is, by every indication, an absolute moral archetype. I would say maybe even slightly too moral for later Miyazaki films. I think Sheeta is possibly too consistently well-behaved for Miyazaki's later movies. That's the only thing that I don't super love about Castle in the Sky, is I do feel like they're not amazing leads. They're surrounded by so many more interesting characters. Yeah, yeah. But that's the only way that I would, like, agree that, like, or I would argue that Castle in the Sky does not feel like a late mature mm. work but we yeah. can come back to that if you want to talk about castle in the sky at some point and i think what we take away from castle in the sky is the idealization of that pirate lifestyle so i've gone very circuitously towards my question here which is to what extent <laughs> is this vocation of sky pirates which is just the most awesome thing i can <laughs> imagine being i mean i definitely want to be a sky pirate and have since I watched Castle in the Sky, <laughs> maybe sans some of the cleaning up as 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 a transfer, I could I could definitely do without the kitchen work. <laughs> <laughs> but putting that aside, to what extent is this like a, a, a symbolic force in Miyazaki? I, I mean, I think maybe broadening my question a little bit beyond my fixation on sky pirates and and how self evidently awesome they are. The other question that I can relate to this is his aeronautical obsession. Airplanes are very much an ambiguous symbol in Miyazaki's work. As technology, they represent his somewhat Heideggerian ambivalence to technology. There's, there's a really wonderful YouTube video that talks about Miyazaki as a Heideggerian, which I believe you can find by typing in Heidegger and Miyazaki into YouTube. Let me check real quick. I think that video got copyright claimed. Oh, that's that is bloody Disney. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not saying anything about Miyazaki Heidegger. If you do want to find it, you can look that up, and I do believe there is a, an internet archive upload of it. Heidegger has a critique of technology, and to simplify to a point that is completely incorrect <laughs> in terms of alienation, for him, technology is fundamentally an alienated form of relating to the world. It's more sensuous than that. It it relates more to the way in which the shaping of the world shapes ourselves. But that's, I think, a not entirely unfair way to characterize it. Heidegger is not a good person, by the way. I'll I'll say that. 
necessary qualifying remarks, yeah. He's a bit of a bastard. Hassel fan all the way. Um, I was going to say, I think a lot of people are going to hear this and assume you're talking about the Nazism, which um, you are, but it's the Hussle thing. Don't fuck over, Hussle. So, that's a very roundabout way of asking, where do airplanes in this film fit within Miyazaki's attitude to the modern as a concept? Yeah. So I think, honestly, since the three films of Miyazaki's that we've talked on are Castle in the Sky, Porco Rosso, and Wind Rises, it's really interesting in that all three of these movies deal really explicitly with that relationship between war and the state and freedom and all of these things. The Wind Rises is where this kind of stuff really gets brought to the fore so we can talk about this. We didn't get to talk about this earlier. We might as well... This this turns out this is just going to be a Wind Rises podcast as well, on accident. The whole thing is very clearly, if not almost explicitly, a metaphor for Miyazaki's artistic work. And the choice for Miyazaki to, I see my art as something that has both positive and negative effects on the world... That makes sense. Miyazaki started out in the 60s as an animator at, I believe, Toei? He was a union organizer there for the animators. And so he's always had a little bit of like... He starts out as a Marxist in a much more, in my opinion, full sense in that he centers the class struggle and the importance of class solidarity, all of that kind of stuff. Basic, but nonetheless... We say that Miyazaki is going through a crisis of faith and losing his faith in Marxism with Yugoslavia. But if Yugoslavia is the thing that makes your belief in Marxism shatter, I would already start to have a few questions about how you understand Marxism in the first place. Yes, that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) But by the time that like Miyazaki has a reputation for, you know, he is one of the people who owns Ghibli and he is clearly the creative force behind it, along with the now late Isao Takahata, who... I feel like this is much more well-known at this point than it was a few years ago. But yeah, Isao Takahata is also 100% a director that's worth... Ghibli is not synonymous with Miyazaki. By the time that um, Wind Rises comes out, he is in charge of this company. He is the defining creative voice about this. And um, speaking of people who are bastards, everything that I have ever heard makes Miyazaki sound like he is an atrocious asshole of a boss to work with or work for. And... He kind of knows it. I don't think it's a mistake that not only is he positioning himself in The Wind Rises, is he's metaphorically positioning himself as someone responsible for creating weapons of war, but also on behalf of an authoritarian regime. Like, it's, I think that's, the fact that he also has that personal tie to it with his family is perfect, but I don't necessarily think that is as necessary, like... Thematically, that's a very interesting personal connection, but I think that is the important thing to take away is that he views his art as being this very interesting trade-off between beauty and harm in the name of this kind of authoritarianism. In Castle in the Sky and Porco Rosso, technology, I would not argue that he has a very ambiguous view of technology. He has an ambiguous view of people And technology's ability to enhance those proclivities. You know, Princess Mononoke is not anti-technology. It's anti... Trying to think of her name. um, It's not even anti-her, but I don't want to go into the nuances of um, Princess Mononoke. That's for a different time. But the way that she wants to use technology to exploit and subjugate nature for her private gain... 
is a very clear example of the technology in that movie is not really framed as the problem. The main characters are not heroic because they forego technology. They're heroic because they forego exploitation and the assumption that nature exists to be domineered over and controlled. But by the time that Wind Rises comes around, Miyazaki, I think, has a much more ambiguous view that he may or may not have unintentionally included in his previous films, but I don't think is there intentionally, in that planes in The Wind Rises are not just a value-neutral thing that people who are good can use and people who are bad can use. The bad purposes are being built into these devices The design decisions that go into the Japanese Zero are it is a lightweight plane that is fast and maneuverable, which makes it incredibly, at the beginning of World War II, very useful because especially um, against the Americans, around this time, like our Navy was flying something called, I believe, the Douglas. It's a two-seater pilot and a machine gunner in the back. It's this very big, bulky dive bomber, and Zeros could run circles around. They're lightly armored and not super effective in terms of just slugging it out, but that's the whole point. They're so much faster, and there's more to it than that. I don't know that much about World War II, but the point being is that all of this is designed into the device. The, The Zero is not some just random plane that someone bad decided to do making a inherently not flawed but that's the problem is it isn't a flawed device it is exactly what is supposed to be a weapon of war that is built into that and i think if you want to go back to the older movies there's bits of that in porco rosso i would say though that even though it has this background of the war I honestly would say that I feel like the planes themselves have a pretty positive portrayal on the whole as being these vehicles that grant freedom. The war is almost seen as like a perversion, I would argue. I wouldn't argue that it's really that brought into focus because it's kind of the point. He uses planes as this wonderful, these machines that can explore the sky and all of this. And that's what I was going to say about the technology was just that, like, this ambiguity is in the future films, but here I definitely feel like it has a much more unambiguous status that maybe it shouldn't have, because clearly Porco has his skills because he was in the war, and he's haunted by the war, and he chooses to use his machine as a pacifist. He shoots out, I think at the very beginning... Whenever he's shooting at the Sky Pilots, he destroys their second engine. And the school children are on here and they say they're going to crash. And the guy says, no, we, you know, we're not. We have a second engine. And then Porco shoots the tail off and they say they're going to sink. We're not. It's a seaplane. That's cute. That's great. That's fun. His pacifism is fun here and everything. It's also unrealistic. There is no way... Porco Rosso engaged that plane and shot at with machine guns without killing one of those girls, if not more. He just doesn't super deal with that, which is kind of part of whatever I mean about, like, earlier about how I feel like this this is a movie, you say it once, it's almost like melancholy against its will. This whole world is fantastical and fun until fascism creeps in on it. And not fascism, again, this is also what I mean by it's not making a political statement per se, is that it's so much more about the idea of fascism, fascism, this all-consuming conformity, and this limitation on freedom. Miyazaki is not necessarily, he is not engaging in a detailed dialogue about anything, but there's little hints in the background. The only person in the movie who is not a deserter is Curtis. 
the American. Because what's more American than flying to another country and killing people for money? We're, we're good at this. We took, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I realize that joke would go dark really quickly if I continued with it. I have a strange affection for Curtis I feel like I shouldn't have, but then I feel like that's what his character is designed to make you do. And that like bespeaks the innocence of this movie, right? Mm-hmm. Curtis is no innocent person. He shoots down Porcaroco in cold blood. He's a, an appalling womanizer. He, Unlike Porco, who's only a mild womanizer. <laughs> yeah. You always get the feeling that, that Porco is like a womanizer of the past. He's he's done his absolutely terrible womanizing a long time ago. You know, now it's just a side thing. He mostly he mostly bothers a woman who actually just wants him to settle down with her in this kind of strange monogamous dance. <laughs> like he, but then that gets to the heart of Curtis, right? Because Curtis is who he was. Sans the Americanism. Curtis is very much the kind of person that Pocaroso was when he was human, when he, before he was cursed, which we'll definitely get into a little bit. Not that there's a lot to get into. The curse is... Actually, I'll just bring that up. Go ahead. This is the pro- the, the problem and the beauty of Porco Rosso is that it is such a fun adventure movie on the surface of it that has such an unbelievable amount going on. Like Not even beneath the surface. It's right there. You just don't have to think about it if you don't want to. Except for the curse, which I'll let you take this. Just, yeah. <laughs> so it's ethereal. Mm-hmm. And we know it's ethereal because it, it takes place above the skyline when... Pocaroso is in a air dog fight and he flies up along with all of the pilots who've been obviously massacred, who are sort of ghost planes now. They're floating up to heaven or wherever. I mean, heaven doesn't quite fit Miyazaki's worldview. I don't even believe then. And he is then cursed with the head of a pig. And it's weird. In other Ghibli films, if he had been cursed in this way, and to be clear, that's not very unusual for a Ghibli film. There's plenty of animalistic transformation. I would be willing to bet that most Ghibli movies contain one transformation like that of some kind, so yeah. Yeah, metamorphosis is not unusual. What What is unusual is is the lack of explanation. And I mean ex- lack of explanation even in, in a kind of magical realist sense. Because to be very clear, this film is pretty realistic in everything but its cartoonish violence and in its referral curse. You can shoot planes down without killing anyone. and Reliably. Pig. Yes, very reliably. And you can gain the head of a pig, but pretty much everything else, including a real sense of danger from the fascist state, is fairly naturalistic. Like, if the fascists catch you, they're probably going to kill you. And... By and large, other things work as you would expect them to. Being pummeled is going to leave you pretty battered and bruised, etc., etc., etc. That violence isn't unusual, but but the rules of the game are very naturalistic in just the way in which the world mechanically works. And yet there is this magical realist conceit that doesn't have an explanation. The usual explanation would be something to do with Japanese animism, one of these crone riches who would almost certainly connect to something like Japanese animism, if not some kind of pseudo-European animism. And so we're kind of left with this confusion about 
this metaphor of of him as as a pig despite the fact that it tracks on pretty well with the use of such kinds of transformation elsewhere it feels to me like this is the element of of nature and of the later post-Marxist animism that Miyazaki embraces. And and that's what I meant when I wanted to sort of anchor the idea that Miyazaki does have a kind of worldview, albeit maybe not one as rounded and and as holistic as as the Marxism that he gave up, especially the sort of class-influenced Marxism of his arguably pre-Ghibli studio days. Yet there is this animism there, it's significantly less pronounced, but it, it it's in the feel of the movie, if that's not too vague. It's in it's in the feel of how the movie depicts nature, in in the feel of how it depicts that transformation and how that links metatextually. There's there's a metatextual element and the pig aspect feels very animist. It feels very much of that spirit of Miyazaki's movies. So I really wanted to ask you if you even have an answer, because I'm not sure there is one. Why why does he become a pig? That is absolutely fine. I love vague fumbling questions because that means I can pivot into talking about whatever the hell I wanted to talk about anyway. So <laughs> that's a joke, I promise. Um, But this might be a bit trivializing. I will provide two answers, one more serious than the well, one more substantial than the other. They're both serious. Uh, for one, I genuinely think a huge part of this is that if, if, if an Italian fascist were to call you something, were to like call you a name, I think Red Pig would be a pretty... I, 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 don't, I, I genuinely think that's part of the, the answer. I'll get to why that is. Because something else that gets onto this is that there's a part in the movie where Porco says something to the effect of, all middle-aged men are pigs. And throughout Miyazaki's work, I'm trying to see if I can think of all of the ones that I would say fit this, Kiki's delivery service unambiguously spirited away, Castle in the Sky to some extent, coming-of-age stories. A lot of them have this theme. There's elements of it in... Ponyo and Totoro, although that's clearly not, like, that's not what they're about, but, like, you know, I would definitely say unambiguously Spirited Away and the movie he worked on before this, Kiki's Delivery Service. I think, interestingly, Porco Rosso is also a coming-of-age story, but the age in question is middle age, not adulthood. And, because this fits in with where Miyazaki is in his life, he refers to himself in real life as a pig. He resonates with this. Porco Rosso is embodiment of a lot of his flaws Miyazaki I, I will say this because like I hate saying this because it sounds like it is an accusation but it's not like yeah Miyazaki does not quite deserve the feminist credentials I think he is so regularly awarded and Porco Rosso is um as a character exemplifies turns all of that up to I don't think Miyazaki in real life is likely as much of a chauvinist as Porco is but still <laughs> I mean Porco Rosso isn't just sort of run-of-the-mill chauvinist he he genuinely does not see women as capable in a way that has a a level of authenticity to it that is quite convincing let's say like it's persuasive like i've met people with this attitude to especially young women yes yeah which isn't to say obviously i have as a, a writer myself i have quite a great deal of respect for narrative imagination i you know i hope i can write people with bigotries and prejudices that I don't myself don't demonstrate but it is a very inside of you it is a very well-informed depiction of that (laughs) kind of 
ideology, let's say, if your ideology isn't actually a little a little too grandizing and a little too unfair to Miyazaki, because I'm not sure that he is, for all of his condescension necessarily, he doesn't have the anti-woman stance that a lot of anime does. I mean, let, let's be quite frank, like, if you watch mainstream anime, and I think this is how he partly gets his credentials as a feminist, because he does critique it to some extent, and his anime does stand in contrast to a lot of it. Yes, yeah. I regularly praise Bleach for just having strong women characters. Let's just say they all have very large cup sizes, (laughs) and they're not protagonists, they're not main characters by any indication. You know, they are they are still occasionally even damsels in distress. If Miyazaki has a damsel in distress, the situation, as it is in Castle in the Sky, will very quickly be turned around. That's the other thing, too, is because Ghibli is definitely the anime that transcends anime to the point of where a lot of people who are really into anime kind of don't feel like it mm. entirely fits because Miyazaki is clearly just out of step with anime as a subculture basically like it is animation from japan but it is not part of that subcultural world i think a lot of it honestly just has to do too with the fact that when these movies were coming over to america and i would assume it came to the uk around the same time i don't actually know princess mononoke was the first one released over here in 97 you know that's two years before i was born like that's I'm sure for a lot of people that is like like listening to this, that's not that long ago. But it's more than my life ago, so it feels pretty damn far away for me. And in that time, Western animation has improved pretty considerably in its depiction. Honestly, even within the last 10 years, I feel like things are so much more just better in a lot of ways now than they were so i I don't want to say it's like i I feel like a lot of people who watch ghibli who gets this feminist credentials are also just because animated movies in general are not going to be held to a particularly high standard on any front and most of the mature western animation that people are familiar with i don't want to suggest there isn't like there's plenty that people aren't aware of But like the Disney Renaissance films of the 90s, most of them are either about men, well, boys, you know, whatever, or they're about women, and they're not quite as mature or humanizing as they might, that people might want them to be. I think Ghibli also gets a lot of credit just for being like, it feels feminist because it treats its female characters like people, and it doesn't even have to do that much just to be like, by default, better. Yeah, there's a low bar, basically. It turns out, for most of recent history, Western society and Western-influenced societies and non-Western societies, what am I talking about, don't super love and respect women. I don't know what's up with that, but... There might be a slight through line in, in, in the history of class society about people who aren't cis-het men. <laughs> um... <laughs> To some extent or another, yes. When it comes to to anime, I mean, anime is just not great, like generally. And then you're right; it's there's there's an element of playing catch up, but there's there's a huge element of a, a highly patriarchal society dominated by rich men <laughs> who who are just going to depict the the reality that they know. Yeah. And the reality that they think that their audiences want to see. And the reality that sells. And, and I think, yeah, with commercial anime, there are so many factors. And 
Ghibli is by no means outside of of that remit. But I think Ghibli, because of the auteur status of Hayao Miyazaki, because he has a level of creative influence that a lot of anime directors, especially made for television anime directors, could only dream of. You know, in a way, he does have huge authorial advantages in terms of depicting, even within his very limited way, a more gender egalitarian vision of of, of people in, in general. It does occur to me that like a lot of his strong female protagonists they're idealized they often they're often very character typed they're very they're very molded i mean i i always think of theo for example in in this film as pretty much the protagonist of a boy's adventure novel except in so far as she's a, a girl a young woman she fits that a lot of the women in in his books fit that type sometimes and I think this is the influence of a particular Welsh writer. So there's a particular Welsh author. She was a contemporary of Tolkien's, one of the sort of mythopoetic set. Diana Wynne-Jones? That's correct. She was very influenced by Middle Eastern, and especially Middle Eastern through European vein myth, which, as anybody who knows what I'm talking about, will immediately gather even anyone who knows about Lovecraft will immediately gather. I'm, I'm referring to the Shazarhad, 1001 Nights kind of stuff. But she's very influenced by that. And so there is a strand of that that has strong women. It's it's a somewhat underselled aspect of, of that whole line of right. And she channels that. And I think Miyazaki channels that through her because a lot of what Miyazaki does are very, very loose adaptations of her work. Miyazaki definitely comes from the Alfred Hitchcock school of adaptation, in which adaptation is sort of like a starting point for a film, not a, not a, not a script, certainly. Which I think, incidentally, is entirely correct. I, I actually think that's the best way to adapt literature in general. But yeah, she's a boys' adventure character. There are plenty of other boys' adventure characters. She's interesting, but like she she doesn't really go beyond that script, and and I don't think that there's really any expectation from the so-called feminism of Miyazaki that any of his women really step outside of a very allotted role for them, and even if that role is considerably broader than than what's assigned to women in most anime and indeed a lot of Western cartoons way into the nineties. I think that that's that's still nonetheless a delimiting part. I I think what makes Castle in the Sky and certain later Ghibli films maybe stand out is that the protagonist often is a protagonist, that the woman protagonist is often centerpiece. But I think that that's, that's still limited. They're still often very scripted. I think that kind of brings me back to the idea of character, which we've been kind of circling around a little bit. Mm-hmm. And in terms of characters we meet, I think a lot of familiar archetypes. I've mentioned Theo and her type, and I've mentioned Curtis a little bit as a kind of soft villain. I think he's one of the more unusual characters of of this piece. I, I don't see a lot of Curtis in other films. He is the only American to ever appear in a Miyazaki movie, and it, it, it tracks. Yeah, yeah, that's a very Miyazaki move. I that almost feels signature. <laughs> we also have Piccolo, who's a fantastic character also 
a total misogynist. Arguably, I think in 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 a sort of low key way more misogynistic than Pocaroso. But his pragmatism basically extends to his use of women's labor. He's essentially an archetype petty bourgeois boss. I feel like in a way that Miyazaki maybe relates to a little bit. I think it's worth keeping in mind that Miyazaki's socialist ideal is Yugoslavian market socialism. So there's very much, I feel like, a connection there. He dreams of a situation where workers own the workplace and are their own exploiters, not in which workers have democratic authority over the entire economy and we have a situation of the free production of free producers. I'm I'm not entirely convinced Miyazaki would would grasp what the free production of free producers would mean. And I don't mean that in a patronizing sense, but I just don't think he's as read into the theory or has as much enough sort of praxeological experience. I don't think he's in a position to even like benefit from it. I mean, like I do think everyone would benefit from it in the long term. The working class is the universal class, blah, blah, blah. I've, I've read Marx, but like, um, clearly he is just in a different class position than what he was in the 1960s. I'm sure he would have resonated it with a, like with that a lot more before he started to see the benefits of the market system. <laughs> Miyazaki's real problem has always struck me as being nationalism and war, and his anti-capitalism almost seems to stem from a, a recognition that capitalism is a necessary part of the nation-state as a structure and the driver behind imperialist conflict, not so much any problem with capitalism itself as, as it is immediately experienced by those who live through it. So essentially, he's kind of at the level of class consciousness to be maybe a little reductionist of a sort of petty bourgeois social democrat or bourgeois social democrat, as rare as they might be. He understands class as a factor. He perhaps has some lived experience of class conflict, but he's not engaged with living class struggles in his own domestic sphere in a way that would endear him to radical demands within that sphere. Which isn't to say that he's not going to support a general social democratic consensus in Japan, which by all means is his politics. He would probably even support enhanced labour rights to some extent to his own detriment. And, And I think the problem with a certain form of Marxism, especially actually a form of Marxism which I would argue is closer to Miyazaki's social democratic position we're we're not gonna we're not gonna name the tankies here don't worry (laughs) just to clarify we're not talking about stalinists right cool cool just want to make we were clear we're not we're not we're not no no uncle joe on this podcast (laughs) we didn't recently have have a an episode entitled uh, stalinist realism which by the way listeners you might want wow we made it an hour into (laughs) this without cross promotion that's impressive to what extent though to to pivot back to my my long-winded question <laughs> to what extent are we encountering a set of stock characters here i mean i know this is kind of overlaps with certain earlier questions and and perhaps i i could sort of elucidate a little bit more as if <laughs> much excuse to keep talking <laughs> but but to what extent do we see a repetition of of certain types within Miyazaki's fiction. Piccolo, for example, reminds me 
quite a lot of the kind of men who populate the mining village of Castle in the Sky, especially in his relationship to women, because there's that fantastic scene, which fans of Fullmetal Alchemist will maybe get this reference, but there's a scene in which a group of these miners are showing off their muscles to a group of the Sky Pirates <laughs> in, in the show. And they they explode their clothing. And the women are really, really frustrated from this. There's a similar scene in Full Metal Alchemist, which is a, a good introduction to anime to any of our hardened Marxist viewers who uh, listeners who have uh, maybe not partaken of the art form. But <laughs> it back. Yeah, to what extent are these characters are recurring archetypes. Yeah, that's a good question. Porco seems to be the one who most immediately and clearly defies the object, the regular Miyazaki stereotypes, but that's because he's bordering on a self-insert. And everyone else, I mean, as you pointed out, the Sky Pirates are the same characters from Castle in the Sky, minus Dola, but that's because Dola serves as an authority figure there who gives them direction and serves as a figure for the main characters of that movie to aspire to be. There's no reason for that to be there in this movie. In fact, the aimlessness of these characters is kind of part of the point, I would say. So not having that clear, there technically is a leader of the pirates, but he's stupid. So like, who cares? It reminds me of Kronk from Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> so it's like they're, they're, they're molded yes. to the movie to serve the purpose, but they're taken from that. Fio is as stock a Miyazaki. That sure is a Miyazaki girl character. She channels, so, like, they, they, there are so many parallels here between, I would say Nausicaa is the one that comes to mind there, which, can I go ahead and say that, like, I would love to talk about Nausicaa at some point, because, like, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, and I mean, it connects, I think, quite strongly to, to Heio Miyazaki's Marxist phase in, in, a, in a slightly different <laughs> way. It also connects to June, and I'm, it's a critical fan of June. With probably emphasis on the critical because I'm a Marxist and certain things are probably mandated. But just to pick up on something you said then, uh, you mentioned the idea of a author proxy, an author stand-in. I said self-insert, I think. I was thinking sort of about the protagonist of The Wind Also Rises, but also the, protag- the protagonist's father in Ponyo who I believe have both been described as self-inserts or, or, or for proxies to some extent or another for Miyazaki. I, I, you know, there's not really much of a question here, but, but to what extent do you feel like they kind of track with Pokoroka? I mean, in many ways, they don't really at all. They feel like very different characters. They do, I guess, channel something of Miyazaki's relentless misanthropy <laughs> um just, just to, to to one extent or another there, there is a strong sense of of them as not particularly happy people about the continuation no. of the human race to some degree i mean especially oddly for for what is clearly a children movie i mean i think there's there could be a lot to be said about apocaroso is not necessarily a straightforward down the line children's film however appropriate it is Ponyo is definitely a children's film, and the... Ponyo is, I would say, maybe the most child film of all of his movies. Like, it is hard to think of one that... Totoro is the other one. Yeah, yeah. I think Totoro is probably the most child one, but but Koichi, I think it is, the the father 
I mean, he is genocidal about the human race, to put it mildly. I need to rewatch this movie. Holy shit. I, that is, to be completely honest, probably my least favorite Miyazaki movie. I've seen it once. It's, it's not my most favorite. It is, it is very misanthropic and it is very unplotted in a way that other films of his actually get away with better. Uh, and, and the obvious one is is My Neighbor Totoro, and My Neighbor Totoro has no plot. I mean, essentially, it has the plot of a children's film, which is to say a series of very loose adventures. And Ponyo does that too, to a large extent. But it also has this whole thing of ecological catastrophe. And to what extent the father is genocidal, and to what extent he is merely uh, <laughs> a fulcrum for for this this these natural forces in a way that say a pagan greek god might be a fulcrum for natural forces you know now that i'm contemplating it and and the idea of him as sort of a dalek supreme figure is perhaps a little tenuous in my <laughs> mind but nonetheless he does express antipathy uh, antipathy that i don't think is expressed elsewhere except maybe by how and and with how it's much more of an internal personal struggle as he deals with his own humanity and his connection to humanity at large and you know there's there's a lot more obviously ambivalence in part because he is a human but yeah there is there is a strong there's a strong antipathy to humanity's effect on the natural world and humanity's utilitarian use of of the natural world I think in Ponyo in a way that you probably don't see in his other films in quite the same way, but I think like like nonetheless it's it's there. It's it's there across his work. We're kind of closing in on Miyazaki the moralist, and I really want to emphasize that he isn't. I've already kind of done that. But I kind of want to get into the the anti-moralism of Heo Miyazaki as well a little bit more. And there's something that Ursula K. Le Guin said the famous author of both science fiction and fantasy. And she said this about Earthsea adaptation by Heio Miyazaki's son and fellow Ghibli director, Goro Miyazaki, who I have a huge amount of sympathy with, and I think has done some good stuff. And Up on Poppy Hill is a genuinely very good movie, in my opinion. Yeah. And as I was about to say, if he's listening to this, which I'm sure he is, because obviously... <laughs> Leave that studio. Found your own studio. Work for another studio. You could do good stuff. You don't need to wait for your father to retire. It it isn't going to happen anytime soon. It, yeah. Um. So what was the most recent one, dude? Please go to it. I I have seen you make good movies. Go somewhere else where you can do these. I am begging you. As a really quick aside, Goro worked on a TV show uh, in twenty fourteen. This this matters. What does it really matter? Earwig and the Witch. That was the movie I was thinking of, by the way. But he worked on a TV show called Ronja the Robber's Daughter, which I have not seen, but I have heard is pretty good. I, I say I've heard about it. I've looked it up online, and those are the reviews. It seems to be virtually unwatched, to be honest, at least here in the West. Mm. But, and I'm saying this because it might matter to some of the ACR listeners, or at least might be cool, is that for some reason they just released a dub of it mm. in Scots Gaelic. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, we do have a, a Scottish contingent, a sort of 
sister organization who operate semi-autonomously or fully autonomously i'm gonna get myself into trouble <laughs> um, <laughs> not at all. I, I just wanted to mention that is like that's a cool thing that i'm never going to get to say mm. like I'm, I'm not we're not going to do an episode on this show i highly doubt it unless we really want to do the whole everyone with miyazaki in their name we're going to do everything <laughs> they've ever talked about i mean it's tempting it's tempting i actually i i like goro i like goro miyazaki i actually am one of the few people who will defend with huge qualifications the earthsea adaptation i think it's a fine children's fantasy cartoon i don't actually think it's bad it's got some nice turns it's got this stuff about the this magical drug substance that that people are taking in this universe and it works i like the dragons they're fun i like the the <laughs> sense of scope you know whatever it's it it has the feeling of Ursula Caleb Wood novels not not in this one respect point in respect though and it was the respect that she most hoped to come out of this adaptation which was that she was really hoping for the kind of anti-moralism that Hayao Miyazaki does so well. And I think other Ghibli studio directors do quite well, which is the kind of anti-moralism that doesn't depict history as a contestation between good and evil. Now, to be fair, I wouldn't say that this is necessarily true of my favourite Ghibli film, because the lead antagonist of Castle in the Sky is the devil i mean he's he's you know raining nuclear destruction upon the world scroting hindu scripture it's very awesome it's not what you expect to see as a 12 year old it probably influenced the worst side of my like adolescent self he is not a good person. It is very telling that for the Disney dub that was done in the early 2000s, I don't know exactly what year, they got Mark Hamill to do the voice of this guy right after he turned in his work as the Joker, as one of the greatest Jokers on the Batman animated TV series. Like, that's the level of evil we're talking about here. And by the way, that is actually, in my view, one of the things that makes that Disney adaptation watchable, because I cannot stand what they do to my pirate queen goddess. Absolutely ruin her voice. She is just, she has no presence in that film. I mean, she doesn't sound particularly great, Pod, Padzu doesn't sound particularly great. They're fine. They're fairly middling. Padzu sounds like five years older than he is. Yeah, that's that's a huge problem. You know what movie has a really solid dub, go on, though? Go on. Oh, Porco Rosa. Yeah, I was going to say Howl's Moving Castle. Howl's Moving Castle arguably suffers from the sort of Disney celebrity influence in that they are very well-known voices. And I think that's... I think that's it takes away something. I mean, say what you want about Mark Hamill. He is a voice actor. He is a professional voice actor. His Batman's performance is stellar and fan beloved. I, I do, I do have a genuine problem, which I, I believe starts with Aladdin, of non voice actors sort of taking on those roles and becoming very dominant and not necessarily always very good they are in house moving castle but i think it's 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 a it's a general bad trend in movies generally and and especially in disney films i'm not sure if he was a celebrity yet but shia labeouf turns up in the nausicaa dub and it's atrocious that is that is exactly like on key on point for shia labeouf like 
Like he he is yeah he is doing his thing, which sometimes <laughs> is funny I guess, and is sometimes tragic, and and is never anything in between those that that axis. The anti-moralism of Hayao Miyazaki, which is basically no climactic Lord of the Rings style good versus evil. And Ursula K. Le Guin has always set herself up as an opposition to that. I think she has some evil characters, to be honest. But I, I'm not going to like poke holes. Clearly, Goro Miyazaki was not going to make that kind of film. He had a very high fantasy script in mind. He had a very high fantasy handling of cosmic themes of good and evil. And so to turn this around back to Porco Rosso, <laughs> anti-moralism is, is definitely handled, I think, really well in Porco Rosso in the form of Porco's romanizing, which is, you know, for all of Miyazaki's own problems, it is definitely seen as wrong. In the end, Theo proves more than adequate to her role as engineer for Porco Rosso's plane and is able to take advantage of various situations and shows the sort of usual autonomy of one of Miyazaki's characters. His mercenary bounty hunting, which gets away from a lot of moral implications by being able to shoot down a plane of young girls without any blood on his hands. The amoral but lovable pirates, which we've already mentioned at length. And to to bring up a a slightly underappreciated, under-discussed character, Ferrari, uh, Poco's old fascist friend, the only personified fascist of the film, uh, who is not depicted as really wicked at all, but as essentially a kind of survivor. He's he's very much a fascist by convenience, which is basically what he offers to Porco. So Mussolini fucking hated Yugoslavia, apparently very particularly because he felt that they failed to display a proper amount of nationalistic zeal and so he had a huge that's i think that's also a huge part of why this movie is set where it is in the time period that it is basically all i was going to say is is that there is a very strong historical current of world war one pilots who after world war one after you know half a million people died in italy millions of people or you know like i think it's somewhere around a million people were injured to the point of being uh, like non-repairable, non-recoverable. Things were not great in Italy. We all know this. This is how fascism comes about in part, if according to YouTubers, you know, not going to talk about all of the problems with the economic reductionist explanation of things because that does not hold up to scrutiny, but it's a role. And a lot of people who were in the war decided to sign back up, not out of any kind of obligate or sense of like... I am a fascist and this is a thing that I believe in, but this is your skills. This is your skill set that you've spent years honing and you can go back to the civilian world where things are not good. You're not guaranteed a job. This sounds like a defense of their choice and that's not really what I'm meaning to offer, but that there was a huge number of people who from World War One, who were pilots who decided to sign back up for the Italian Air Force. And clearly Ferrari is like, I just want to say there is a historical parallel here of like, this was a real 
thing that happened. Yeah. The Italian government put a lot of work into using aces from World War One in their recruitment and their nationalistic propaganda because planes are new. We have good plane pilots. I think I get exactly what you're saying. I mean, I think for Marxists, people's choices are partly defined by their sensuous reality, by their material conditions to be incredibly reductive. And you don't need to be making an excuse for those people to see how those choices play. And ultimately, I think this gets to Miyazaki's explanation for evil itself, which connects to his anti-moralism. Because for Miyazaki, very often evil is really not demonic in Kant's sense, by which I mean it's not self-motivated. It's not motivated by its own existence. But I kind of want to end on a similar point, really, which is to kind of dovetail into Miyazaki's pacifism, because I think that's a really interesting part of Miyazaki's character, and is partly a tension in his Marxism, because by all indications, his pacifism roots back to his wartime experience and and perhaps even his much earlier class background. And obviously Marxism is not pacifist. I don't think many of our listeners will be particularly surprised to hear that. And I think Miyazaki kind of is. Miyazaki's anti-war message in, in this film does not extend to fighting fascism. And while it comes close in, say, a film like Howl's Moving Castle, at least to fighting war more directly. Ultimately, that's at the cost of Howl's soul. That's at the cost of his his humanity. I mean, the one thing I would say about that is that, like, whatever you want to say about Porco's pacifism, I would say that is such a low... Of all of the things that are preventing him from being an effective anti-fascist, his willingness or lack thereof to be involved in violence is so secondary because he does not recognize fascism as a problematic per se. Fascism appears in this movie almost like an inevitable specter moving in. It's something to be resisted and opposed on principle because freedom is something to be valued on principle. But there's nothing you can really do do about it it's just a tide that's sweeping in like to even discuss about violence i think we would first need to be talking about he is not the kind to talk about community self-defense militant or otherwise and until you start accepting that maybe we should start working together to confront these problems and that we have the possibility of solving them i just feel like the, the issue of pacifism is so secondary in terms of like what is preventing him from being an effective political actor But that's all reflective of where Miyazaki is at at this point in time and where the tide of history is. You know, whatever we might want to say now and how absurd it feels in retrospect, this is right when the end of history is allegedly coming about and the movie reflects that vibe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that connects to to a, a very occasional agreement that I have with Slavoj Žižek, who, you know, Eastern European Marxist... I think, a liberal, personally. So yes, some things in common with Miyazaki. I, I won't overstate it. I'm always surprised that he's never actually directly picked up on Miyazaki, at least as far as I'm aware. Slight agreement with Slavish Zizek, which is that that period was, was the period of the end of history. It was the period where we were all, what's the name of the, uh, Francis Fukuyamaites. We were all kind of of that ilk. 
And I actually do. I actually do think that. I don't think that necessarily we all literally believed in the end of history in the way that Francis Fukuyama seemed to. At least in his, he's called a right Hegelian. He's actually a kind of American social democrat who joined a very strange far right organization. But yeah, neoconservative Francis Fukuyama, you know, had this kind of Hegelianism. I wouldn't say a very informed one. That, that depicted the end of history as as this terminus of liberalism, and you know, I, uh, admittedly, I had the excuse of being considerably younger than than Fukuyama, but I stepped into various forms of liberalism at that age because I did not believe that Marxism was a very real and present, and nor were any other kind of meta explanations of history that that could offer me that kind of vantage point. And and so, yeah, here Miyazaki is very much coming into this point where Marxism is under terminal crisis, not just the Marxism of Europe, but the Marxism of Japan as well in many respects. The, the student movements were in free fall. The sense of a non-postmodern resistance was, was very quickly withering away. And so to blame here Miyazaki for renouncing his Marxism in that period. And I, I even extend this to many of the post-Marxists, of which Miyazaki is in many ways a representative as he maintains certain aspects of a Marxian analysis of the world. They they simply didn't really have the capacity to hold on to a class analysis anymore. And I think that's still a struggle for us as class forces remain weak. I mean, terminally weak, especially in places like Britain, America, etc., in, in admittedly quite different and unique ways. Uh, and I think that's that's a really good place to leave off and potentially a good place to pick up again if we were to examine any other Miyazaki films. Do you have any sort of final thoughts that you, you'd like to share or, or should we wrap things up? I have one final thought, which is that we absolutely should talk about more Miyazaki movies. I Mm-hmm. Yeah, just that. Yes. Yeah, that's not really a thought about Porcaroso, though. No, I, I, I'm very happy with that thought because you will be very surprised to hear. I would very much like to talk about the wonder that is Joe Hiyashi's soundtrack for Castle in the Sky and, and just how perfect a soundtrack it is in every single respect and could not be. Oh, my it. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> This is not like this is like there's no real point that I want to connect this to about anything because this just connects. I guess this connects back to the theme that we started with this whole thing about the end of history and everything. Do you know, like, did you pay attention to what song is on the radio at the beginning of the movie and the song that Gina plays at the bar? I did not, and that feels like a, a massive. Allow me to butcher my French here. But it's a song called Les Temps des Cherries, which is the time of the cherries, which is a song written in 1866 about better times in life and everything that most importantly, famously had verses added during the Paris Commune. That That is amazing. And I'm going to read this out from the Wikipedia page real quick. Les Temps des Cherries is a song written in France in 1866 with words by Jean-Baptiste Clement, who was a socialist and music by Antoine 
Renard, uh, extremely famous in French-speaking countries. The song was later strongly associated with the Paris Commune, during which verses were added to the song, thus becoming a revolutionary song. The Time of Cherries is a metaphor regarding what life will be like when a revolution will have changed social and economic conditions. It is believed to be dedicated by the writer to a nurse who fought in the bloody week when French government troops overthrew the commune. So that inclusion... I. I feel like it speaks for itself. There's really nothing that needs to be added there other than just a point that it's there. Yeah, like, like I don't think we could probably even go into the the nuances of that inclusion <laughs> in the time we have allotted left. But yeah, it speaks to the fact that Miyazaki does have a background in class struggle. Like it, it speaks to the fact that Miyazaki is a a romantic, which is something else we haven't talked about. I mean, a historical romantic in the tradition of European romanticism, which connects to the Heideggerian point. I mean, by by no means do I think necessarily that Miyazaki's Heideggerian motifs are entirely accidental. At the very least, I would imagine Miyazaki is more than familiar with influences on Heidegger in, in terms of European romanticism, in terms of European myth and poetry and, and, and such. And for him to be citing the Paris Commune in that way is just, yeah, magical. In a way that I think we haven't like given him enough credit for in this. Like, like the animation, everything about this film is is really incredible. You know, I think. Yeah. I feel like we might have overstressed how serious this movie is because there is all this stuff operating in the background, but it is a really fun quasi adventure movie that ends with a dogfight where both vehicles are forced to the ground and they end up just duking it out in the ocean and just like it's it's a fun movie it's a fun movie i don't want to over it is also i will say this the wind rises gorgeous it is 20 years newer than porco rosso the animation is unquestionably superior in a technical sense but i can't think of a single other movie period like from anything that captures the feeling of not what flying feels like, but what you want flying to feel like. That's a really good point to end on, because I think that that comes through in so many of Miyazaki's movies, that sense of the world as you want it to be, the the the, the sensuous world as you as you want to experience it. There's something really magical and I think that links to Miyazaki's both his class aspects and his animist aspects. You know, I think he is somebody who is meticulously concerned with production and labor, not as something enforced on people as, as a form of exploitation, but as something that is a expression of people's species essence, to use Marxist language, uh, Marx's language, to be clear. And I, I'm reminded of somebody who once said of a of a phrase of Descartes that it was Cartesian, <laughs> and that expresses that magical quality to reality, that magical quality to to nature that that you can lose yourself in that that is enrapturing. And when that comes together in Miyazaki's love of flight, his love of the depiction of of how flight is experienced, it is something quite breathtaking i think in a way that children as an as his primary audience can naturally gravitate to something that comes through in, in his own personal writings over and over again is the meticulous detail with which he 
invests him his animation with a certain kind of verisimilitude, a certain kind of verisimilitude that is, uh, I don't want to say hyper real because that would mean something slightly different in in terms of sort of postmodern art, etc. But that feels more real than real. That feels real in in the sense of more primordial, more mythic, more vital. And he gives he gives the weight of myth to flight. He gives the weight of of Icarus and and that kind of flight to itself. And I think Icarus is a good metaphor to leave on because there is a sense of sort of flying too close to the sun, I think, quite often in, in Miyazaki's conjuring of flight as a metaphor. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments or ideas, we would love to hear from you. Write to us at acrradio at anticapitalistresistance.org. That's A-C-R-A-D-I-O at anticapitalistresistance.org. And remember to subscribe on your favourite podcast platforms.